to introduce our sermon topic and our preacher, I'm going to read to you a statement that our leadership has prepared. Race and politics are things that people often tend to avoid talking about. Yet, often the topics that are most polarizing in the world are where we see God's truth to be most liberating. James 3 says the wisdom from above is peaceable. That's why I think it's a good risk for us to apply God's word to challenging topics and to be so brave as to do that. The greatest risk is the risk that's sadly most common, the risk of not talking about these things on Sundays at all, while the church at large continues to segregate and divide just like the rest of the nation and to retreat into comfortable homogenous settings where we look like each other and think like each other. But the church, capital C, is a family that has been brought forth by God. And if the Springs is our first name, then I like to think that our last name is Every Nation, as we're a part of a a larger family of churches and ministries called Every Nation. And we're driven by a global passion to foster ethnic redemption something that only the blood of Christ can bring forth and something that nothing like the blood of Christ demands. The political right has no functional power to actually correct the political left and nor the left to correct the right. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can heal the wounds and unite the divisions that are caused by sin and the devil. But here's what we need from you. We need you to know that regardless of where you stand on this whole political spectrum, you are more loved than you know. And so you can bring your right or your left or your moderate or libertarian or whatever and put it on the altar of God. Can you open your heart to hear something that's infinitely better than what you're going to hear on Fox News or MSNBC or anywhere else? If so, then perhaps today just won't simply be a risk, but it will be the day that you are brave enough to play your part in changing the world for the glory of Christ. The man preaching today is not a guest, but one of the founders of our church. He's my best friend and one of the men that God's used to help me be free from the political or cultural limitations that have kept me from seeing Jesus more clearly, or from participating in his kingdom more dynamically. Check out the short little video and then open your hearts to hear God's word from our very own Shadrach Bell. Well, welcome to the Springs. (laughs) As you can see, we're going to get right into it, and it's just like Peter to give me the easy topics when I come back, all right? If that video strikes something inside of you, It's because it's a very real thing that we have to address this day and age, and we can't just overlook it. As Peter says, my name is Shadrick, Uncle Shaddy, to the most important people in this church, our children. And I have the honor and privilege of being here amongst you as family. This is the church that I came to know Jesus in and has transformed my life. And so I'm thankful to be back with you all. But currently, I have the honor and privilege of working as a campus missionary at St. Edwards University in Austin, Texas, about 4,500 students. Um, from all different backgrounds, is very much an international university, and also an HBCU 
Houston Tilton University, which actually is Austin's first um, institution of higher learning. And as many of us know, the I-35 is separated by a social economic barrier. And these two universities are on different sides of the highway. And so that gives me a perspective of how to address a lot of this as we're talking about today. I'm also a pastor at Mosaic Church Austin, um, where Morgan Stevens is our pastor there. And it's his desire and our desire as a church to help build a multi-generational, multi-ethnic, and multicultural church. Now, for that to happen, it takes a lot of Jesus and a lot of people to participate in it. And I sit on a board of a ministry within our church called The Gospel and where we address topics such as these because it's our job as Christians to be in the forefront of today's societal issues and not sit in the background and act as if we're not going to address the elephant that's in the room. And as a church, one thing that we know is that in addressing these topics is that it's going to get very messy really quick. But what we decide to do is that before we go into these topics and into these meetings, we say, you know what? We're going to go in this together, and we're not going to separate when we leave out. And that's the type of commitment that it takes to push forward through what I believe is actually a stronghold over our nation and how we can move forward as believers. During my time as a campus missionary over the past seven years, it's been my desire to actually see the gospel infiltrate race and politics. But with something with so big as this or anything that we face in life, sometimes it can get overwhelming. Sometimes you may say, well, where do we start? And if we do start and if we do do anything, will it even make a difference? But we have to know that something as big as this can't be actually dealt with in a 35-minute sermon. But my hope is that we will begin the process of reconciliation, and reconciliation can only flow from the resurrection of Christ. And though we know that true reconciliation is the ultimate goal and the resurrection is the byproduct of really is the, the source of that, We have to know, just like when we get saved, our life of Christ doesn't stop there. So in the same way, there's still a practical aspect of work that needs to be be done. And like the civil rights ambassadors who have came before me, they actually knew that many of the things that they were working towards, they weren't actually going to be able to see the work that they did, but they left it behind so the generation could follow, could be beneficiaries of that thing that they were working for. And in the same way, we see that in the Bible, when the Bible talks about Hebrews, of all the people of great faith, it says they strove in faith and were believing for the promise of the God, but did not see it. So in the same way, for us to be able to do that in this issue, one, we have to rid of our selfishness and know that we're doing something for somebody else beyond us. And for that to happen, it's going to take the help of the Holy Spirit, all of the blood of Jesus, and your active participation. And we can begin to see progress in this area. If you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember this as our main point for today. The bondage of prejudice and racism is only truly broken by a reconciled people and a reconciled church. See, without this, we will see the perpetual problems that we face in today's society tomorrow because we've never addressed the problems from our past. And the last thing before we get going, it's not my goal to try to clean or make you change your political views. I honestly, in some ways, actually don't care. I'm more concerned that if you qualify yourself as a Christian, how do you address yourself when these issues come up? And the second thing is that if you do not believe in Jesus, I hope today that this information will actually give you another perspective of who Jesus is in regards to these topics. And in doing so, you may actually see that you really do need him. And at the very least, it'll make you a better moral person how to address these topics, all right? So let's pray. Thank you, God 
for being you, and thank you for making us your people. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today as we study. May I communicate your word with both truth and grace, because that's how I received it. And I pray that it's received by your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The bondage of prejudiceness and racism is only truly broken by a reconciled people and a reconciled church. One illustration within the Bible that greatly depicts this is actually the book of Romans. See, the book of Romans was written by a man named Paul, formerly known as Saul of Tarsus, in the church of Roman about 55 AD. Paul was actually a Jewish rabbi and a Pharisee, for who, from his perspective, like it was his life's goal to make sure everybody followed the Torah as hardcore as he did. And Paul was actually known for murdering and persecuting Christians. And after his unique conversion experience in which God shined a light on him in the midst of what he thought was right, in the way that he thought he should treat people, and everything he thought should happen politically within the area, he later became deemed as an apostle to those very people, starting his missionary journey, preaching throughout Rome about Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And the reason why Paul went around preaching this message is probably one of the main reasons why we're addressing this topic today. But honestly, due to our unwillingness to see it as such, we actually don't see this scripture, this particular passage of the Bible, as one that has to deal with race and politics. See, the Bible is actually filled from um, Genesis to Revelations on racial and political issues. And if we don't see it in the scripture, then we can't preach it. And if it's not preached, then how can we ever be changed as a people? And as believers of Christ, many a times we actually see scriptures through a moral lens of how does it make us better? How do we be more evangelistic? Or even sadly, how do we argue theologically at a coffee shop over what the scriptures really mean? All the meanwhile, missing the point of actually uniting God's kingdom together. We superficially stay on top of scriptures because for us to actually dive in culturally what's happening in the moment, it actually makes us have to work with people. And dealing with people is hard. And sometimes we don't want to deal with people. And if you're expecting me to exegete this passage of scripture verse by verse today, I ask that you would change your expectations because that's not what I'm doing. I want us to actually be able to look at what's happening culturally within the area through a particular passage that's pretty popular amongst Christians today. Paul makes a very clear statement that many of us know in Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. By this statement alone, we see that there are two products that we can actually know that makes this statement true. One, everyone who believes in Jesus and his teachings will get saved. If you put your faith in Jesus, you will get saved. Amen. That's a good thing. Number two, everyone who believes in Jesus will eventually be bold about the one who saved them. So you get saved, and a byproduct of that is that you get bold about the one who saved you. But why is Paul making this statement and this claim? So often this passage is preached as a, um, an evangelistic thing of how to spread the gospel or to be bold, which is true. But we also have to look at the heart of the statement of what's going on contextually within the area and what's happening within culture. So let's first look at this practically. See, for Paul to say that he was unashamed of the gospel, we can actually assume at some point he probably was ashamed of the gospel. And the reason why he was ashamed of the gospel is because the man went around killing and persecuting Christians. People who did not look like him, who were not of his bloodline, who did not act like him. And you know what? That is actually something to be ashamed about when you come to know Jesus. And he went from that to being bold after God saved him to being willing to risk his life for the very same people that he was end up murdering and persecuting. See, racial and political tension is constructed by systematic systems that actually are in place within regions within we live in to allow one people or one human to flourish and not the other. And this is exactly what Paul was participating in. 
But we have to see in Scripture that the gospel is, does not exclude anyone. In this particular Scripture, it says it's for everyone who believes. The Bible is very inclusive, and we see that in this Scripture. And I hear people say all the time, mainly some of my family um, who are Muslims, who say, why do you follow that white Jesus? Well, I said, well, maybe you should read the Bible, because um, you should know Jesus is not white. Okay? <laughs> First, also, like, what about Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch? You know what? That Ethiopian eunuch was the person that when he got saved, he actually spread the gospel all throughout Ethiopia, and that's why it's considered a Christian nation today. What about St. Augustine, one of our founders who allowed the gospel to flourish throughout Africa? You know, oh, it's not inclusive to women. Oh, who did Jesus first reveal himself to? What about the end of Romans? If you actually read it, it actually talks about a woman there and her her. Her basically her emphasis that allowed um, the gospel to be spread through that particular area. And despite these suspicions and wrongly illustrations of who Jesus is, again, I would hope that you would know that English was not Jesus' first language and that Jesus was not white. And more importantly, if you've been in this church any amount of time, we all know that Jesus is Spanish. Of course he speaks Spanish, right? Of course he is, right? Because anybody who can make these tortillas rain down from heaven in Exodus knows that that's the only thing that can fulfill people in the wilderness over all that time, right? And all my brown people said, amen. All right. But back to Rome, okay, and Paul. So why is he stating this statement and what's going on culturally at the time? Well, number one, the church of Rome consisted of two type of people, Jewish followers of Jesus, and number two, non-Jewish followers who are Gentiles, which actually would be all of us in this room many of whom came to know Jesus after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul was actually the first apostle sent to this particular area to actually preach the gospel to people not like him. See, the Roman emperor at the time was a man by the name of Claudius, who was not a great leader, very inexperienced, go figure, sounds familiar, okay, um, who expelled people, who expelled Jews out of his land for over five years. And after that five-year period, Jews were actually allowed to enter Rome at that particular time. And upon his arrival, Jewish Christians now met these non-Jewish Gentiles who were establishing their cultural and traditional ways and what they felt like, there was their, and what they felt like it was their hometown. So now there leaves a huge political and racial tension within the area because now Jews are actually saying, hey, these promises of God are actually only for us. It's not for these Gentile people over here. And it all comes down to because the Jews were actually stubborn about their way, their lifestyle, and what they think should be established within the land. And that's because, honestly, there was some type of prejudice within their heart. See, it was actually Paul's desire to actually unite these Jews and Gentiles together through the teachings of Jesus Christ that actually changed his life in the midst of the racial and political tension that was happening within the area. Now, I've heard it all the time. Now, you can debate, okay, is this a real race or is this a real tribe or all these different things? But the premise of it is that the spreading of the gospel was a crucial factor that actually reconciled all people back to Jesus and reconciled these people to say, you know what, the promise of God are for everybody. You know what, and despite this political and racial tension, it sounds really familiar. It actually sounds a lot like America today. You know what, our church is divided racially. Our churches are divided politically. The land is divided. You know what, there's nothing new under the sun. We see it happening in the Bible here. And you know what, God is saying through Paul and to us today, the only way that we can be reconciled as people is through Jesus. And if you can imagine that this split happened within Rome within a five-year period, how much more would it be with the history of America that this has been going on for centuries now? See, Paul actually spends the first two chapters of Romans explaining that both Jews, his people, and Gentiles, we were all dead in the sin, and the only person who could save us from it was Jesus. 
He actually alludes in those first two chapters back to Genesis 3 through 11 and says, you know what? No matter of the, who you are, no matter of your background, no matter of your beliefs, that we turn from God and we embrace idolatry and selfishness. Idolatry saying, you know what? I believe that my way is right and I'm going to be selfish about it. And idolatry and selfishness is actually the breeding grounds for racism and prejudice. And this is the reason why. It's because you begin to have an elevated view of yourself. And if you have an elevated view of yourself, you look down on somebody else. And what ended up happening was that in the midst of that, Paul was knocked off his high horse so Jesus could actually show him that. And I think he's doing all of that to us today. I mean, the Romans were actually arguing about what to eat, what to wear, what law should be established, all real, not realizing that the law that was in their heart was actually broken, and the law of the Torah is actually the law of love. And Paul says to these religious folks at the time that you were actually more guilty than the Gentiles because you actually have the Torah, and you know better. So for us as believers in the room today, I want to ask you a question. Do you think in the midst of this racial and political tension that the way you think about race and politics is the only right way? And if you do... I would have to say this in the most gracious way that you probably are operating some form of biasness and prejudice. See, we're all guilty, just like the Jews and Gentiles. We all need a God to come and save and fix what's inside of us. You know what? And the gospel is the starting point for that. And from that, there's still work to be done. See, and that's the promise of salvation is that it just doesn't stop there. It gets better, and it gets better, and we get to take what God's put inside of us to people outside in the world. So what are some practical ways that a reconciled people and a reconciled church can make a difference in regards to this topic? Number one, remembering the supremacy of Christ. If you claim to be a Christian today, remember that Jesus is just not your Savior. He is your Lord. So in regards to this topic, I don't believe that God really cares how we feel. It's about what his word says. And we are all subject to God's supremacy over our lives in every area. The hardest thing about what we face today when it comes to political issues or really any sin issue in our life is actually submitting ourselves to the lordship of Jesus, of him saying, you know what, I tell you what to do in this area. And that's any issue that we deal with, right? It all comes down to obedience, as my old Filipino friend used to say. Every problem I ever had, he never gave me any wisdom. He just said, obey that's why Filipino people are more holy than me. All right, it's true. Because they just obey, okay? In every area of your life. So, you know, there are things in the Bible today that I still struggle with because I don't want to submit it to Jesus. Everybody's like, God, I want your will. I tell God, no, I don't want your will. I want to do it my way. And we have to submit ourselves to that. So for me, one of the things is, is about my race. God has made me black, and I'm proud of it. I love being black. Black is being awesome. I love the color black. If there was black ice cream, I would eat it too. But you know what? Like, I have to be proud to be black and not be prideful about it. There's two totally different things. I'm proud about my ancestry and where I came from and all the progress that's being made. But I'm a child of God first. And I'm black second. For many of us, it's actually not putting our political party above Jesus. That Jesus reigns in this area. Number two is repent. To humble yourself and remember what God has done for both you and I. Second Chronicles 7, 14 through 15 says this. It says, if my people, not the atheist, not the agnostic, not the conservative, not the liberal, not the in-between or any other thing. It says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their land 
forgive them of their sin and heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. If you're wondering why I believe that this is still going on, it has a lot to do with Christians humbling themselves. That's why this land is not healed. And see, when you're humble before God, you can actually be a witness to bring healing to others. And that's the calling that God has for us, to be a witness of God. You know, and what, is that, what does that mean? You know, power to be a witness? What, for us to gloat about our possessions or our political parties or the things that we have? No, power to be a witness to do what? That word in the Greek means martyr. Power to what? Die. Die to yourself. Die to your thinking. Die to the ways that you think that it should go. For me to die to that. That's why God gives us power to be his witness, to humble ourselves and to die. No amens, I figured. All right. Number three, pray for your leaders. It says, first of all, everyone says, first of all. So like before you brush your teeth or take a bath. No, I'm kidding. That is unholy. Take a brush your teeth. You know what? It says, first of all, this is what you should do. I urge that supplications, prayer, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions and authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And that is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of the God and our Father. How many of us want to be pleasing in the sight of God? Okay, pray for your leaders. I don't care who's in office. They're your leader. I would hear people say all the time, oh, OMG, Obama must go. He's not my president. Yes, he is at the time. I don't believe that Trump's not my president. Uh, yes, he is. Your, your president got stunned by Stone Cold on, on Raw years ago before he became president. He is your president, all right? I don't care who's in office. They're your president. You know, and God actually calls us to pray for them. And not pray for them like, Lord, I wish you would turn, into, turn them into a frog and they would just, you know, suffer all their life. No, like bless them. Bless them and pray for them and pray for their families. Because you know what? We didn't come to find Jesus out by ourselves either. Somebody pray for us. My grandma was praying for me years ago that I would change when I didn't actually love Jesus. And you know what? God can do more with your prayers than he can with our opinions. God can change people at any moment and at any time. And it is his choice to do so. And it's your responsibility and our responsibility as Christians to pray. Number four, have dialogue with people who are different than you. I cannot stress how important this actually is and how practical and easy this is to make it happen. You know, Proverbs 4 and 7 says the beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Go figure. The beginning of wisdom is just for you to get wisdom. (laughs) Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. You know what? For you to get wisdom about other people who don't look like you, don't act like you, don't think like you. It's going to cost you your pride. It's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you your status. It's going to cost you your opinion. It's going to cost you everything. Get wisdom. Why? So you can use that as an argument against somebody else who doesn't think about you at another time? No. But to dialogue and to figure out how can I wisely address this issue when I come to somebody who doesn't look like me. There is actually power in sitting across from somebody who does not look like you and doesn't think like you. To understand what they're doing. You know, at different races, different people, different backgrounds. Even sitting across somebody who's in an interracial relationship. They're kids. Having the feeling of, man, do I fit in any bracket? What do I check even on a box? I don't know what I am. Sitting across from people who are completely different than you. And when you sit across from somebody and you begin to have these dialogues and conversations, I would encourage you to remember this. That you cannot get mad at them for not knowing. That is the reason why you're having a conversation in the first place, is to help bring wisdom. And number two, don't get mad when you disagree with them. Disagreement does not mean hate. 
I don't know where this is happening in the lifestyle. And if you believe that disagreement means hate, don't expect to have any type of meaningful friendships or relationships or anything in your life. And if you do believe that, you probably don't have any friends. <laughs> and you'll probably never get married or anything like that because like, disagreement does not mean hate. And we have to remember this, that each and every person, no matter if they're a believer or not, actually holds the image of God. So every person has a piece of who God is and his goodness. And so, so many times God actually puts us across from people who don't look like us and don't think like us to actually explain and show and project who he is. So maybe it's not that you're disagreeing with them as a person. Maybe you're just disagreeing with a piece of who God is. And you have to go before yourself and ask yourself, you know what, God, I want to accept who you are through other people. And as we move forward, it's not about just bringing truth, it's having grace. And one of the easiest ways to have grace in a conversation is to remember James 1 and 19 says this. It says, my dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak. My mom used to always tell me, Shadrach, you got two ears and one mouth, shut up. (laughs) There's a time to talk and there's also a time to listen. And you have to decide when you're going into these conversations, do I want to make a point or do I want to make a difference? If you want to make a point, you'll keep talking. But if you want to make a difference, you'll listen. And truly listening is the breeding ground for this next point, having empathy over sympathy. Empathy and sympathy are two different things. Sympathy says, man, I feel sorry for you and having pity for somebody. Empathy is saying, I put myself in your shoes. I take myself out of my life and out of my lifestyle and I put myself in your shoes and embrace and feel your hurt. You know what? And so many people say, you know what? Is this about serving you know, in the church? Is it about giving? Is it about all these things? You know what the Bible tells us that a true mark of a Christian is? What should be tattooed and etched on our heart is actually in Romans 12, 12, and it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. A true Christian knows how to empathize with people. We'll never fully grasp what somebody's going through unless we put ourselves within that place. And you know what? Your willingness to take yourself out of your bubble and to place yourself in somebody else, no matter of your belief, color, or perspective, can actually be the thing that actually breaks that stronghold over that person's life and gives them healing because they want to see that Jesus is real through us. So I really don't care if you're a conservative, but I want to know, are you liberal in your love? Are you liberal in loving people who don't look like you, act like you, Are you willing to give your time, your resources, and your finance? How about this? When God is telling you to give something to the poor, even though you know he may use it and use it the wrong way, that's a trump card for you. When God speaks to you, do you obey? Do you really believe that it says when we turn our heads from the poor, that we actually turn our heads from the face of God? Do we really believe the scripture that says this? Unless you think you've obtained this wealth by your own hands, that I will destroy you like I have the votes before you who thought they attained this wealth by their own hands. I really don't care if you're liberal. I don't. I, I really don't either way. You know, there are things in the Bible that are very straightforward that we can't take scripture about, you know. You know, are you, are you pro-choice or are you anti-consequence and anti-planning? For me, as an African-American male, I don't support institutions that was made to actually um, eradicate my race of people. Martin Luther King's daughter actually said, if you're looking for the next MLK, he may be found in one of those clinics. Mm-hmm. 
These are things that we have to wrestle through. And the Bible is very clear about many things, but it all goes about putting ourselves underneath the lordship of what Jesus says and not our opinions. I'm not anti-voting. I voted this year. I think you should vote. I think that's part of your privilege and your right. You should. But I do believe that Jesus should be the center of everything that we do. Number six, undoing systems by losing your privilege. Social justice doesn't mean justice for one particular group of people. Repenting of sins is great, and coming to know Jesus is great, but repenting of sins don't actually undo systematic injustice. And we as Christians love to hide behind statements like, if a person gets saved, that they'll instantly not be prejudiced or racist anymore. That's not true. (laughs) Or that systems will come undone. You have to take a stand within your government and within your community to actually establish biblical-based things that help make a difference for all people to flourish without bias. Historically, systems have been in place for years, and it's going to take years to deconstruct them. I mean, even something as much as we don't want to admit it, if you read their history, you look at the Electoral College, we can talk about three-fifths compromise and where that was derived from. There's so many different things that are placed within there, but you know what? All humans should have the opportunity to flourish and have privileges. And remember that when God gives us a privilege, that's a gift from God. It's not our right. We're not entitled to anything. And when God blesses us, no matter what our privilege is, is how we use it for other people. And you can agree with me or not, whether you're white, black, or anything in between, everybody in some form today has a privilege. And it's whether you use your privilege and your platform to help other people or to use it for yourself. A good friend of mine by the name of Terrence Green, who's a professor at the University of Texas, and honestly is just one of the most devout Christian men that I know, he says, if your comforts have not been shaken in your actions, then your privilege has not been rid of at that particular moment. And what he means by that is he's saying that God is always calling us out of our comfort zone. So if you do something and your comfort isn't shaken, then your privilege hasn't been taken from you and placed on somebody else. And then your actions is actually really self-centered of making you feel like I just did this for myself instead of really placing that privilege on someone else. He goes on to say this, is that our privileges, though they're not equal today, we all have them. And we should use our platforms to help meet others' physical needs, just as Jesus did. He just didn't preach the gospel. He met their physical needs, too. And for not our own benefit and disregard people's needs comparatively. And we do this so many times within the Christian church. For example, going on mission trips. I think it's great. We should do it. Go spend your money on this barbecue. All right? But when it comes to missions, we actually don't even, like, sometimes we don't even lose our privilege within it. Because we go to other countries, and we go there, and we say, oh, man, they're so much poorer than ours. But we're so much poorer than, than America. But what we're doing in that moment, we're reflecting back on our hometown and thinking how good we have it. And we want to get back there quickly. Instead of looking at it from a sense of saying, you know what, God, I'm thankful for what they have over there. But you know what? Poverty is an issue globally. And how do we make a difference here and come back and make a difference here at home, too? It's both and. It's neither either or. And you know what? I love when the Bible says that God gives our power to be. He gives us power to be a witness. Where? Where does he give us power to be a witness from? You know, overseas. Yeah, that's good. But let's start at the first one. Jerusalem. Those were those people's hometown. Don't go somewhere else unless you take care of home first. Are we active in our community and our city that God has placed us in around what we're supposed to do before we go somewhere else? Because we're only going to take our prejudice and racism there over there. 
And many times, all of my friends, when I go to other countries, they look at me and they tell me, you know, I'm so much more blessed than you. And then where else? Does it stop there in our hometowns? No. Get on mission. You should be going on mission trips. Why? Because God told you to. The supremacy of Christ thing, it all goes back to that. Obey is God's word. Do it to the ends of the earth. You know what? Okay, we're going to go to Jerusalem. That's great. Judea, that's great. Oh, Samaria. Oh, I don't want to go there at all. Because, you know, the Romans, they didn't like the Samaritans at all. I don't want to go to those people, that type of place, those type of folks. No, God says even there too. And I love it because after that, after Jesus makes this statement, he just ascends to heaven. And he's like, deuces, it's your job to make for this racial reconciliation problem. Why? Because what makes Jesus look good is not Jesus doing the work. It's Jesus doing the work through broken people who are racist and prejudiced too. And it was 10, like in verse 10, right after that, it says, they just looked in the sky and two angels looked at him and said, what are you still staring for? And I believe that's what God's telling us to do. What are we still standing for? What are we still doing? There's work to be done. Talk to your law enforcement. They have a, they have a, they know the culture that's going on with the city. Bless them. Serve them. Read books. There's nothing more frustrating than asking somebody, hey, like, do you, are you making a difference in this? No, what should I do? You, you Google everything else that you want to know about. Read books. I love what Pastor Eric Mason says. He says, all people are responsible for educational remediation that goes to reconciliation, not just those who are underprivileged. At the end of this service, I'm going to have a slide up, and there's going to be many books and resources that will tell you what to do. For radically changed people to make a difference, they have to be, of course, radically changed. And I'm not up here today because I think I know everything. It's actually because I'm very weak within this area. See, I grew up with a mom who grew up in a, a, basically eight people in a two-bedroom shack in Louisiana, she had to go her whole life through the back of any store, any hospital, anything you can think of. And her birth certificate still says color on it. And I grew up with a dad from Pittsburgh, top 10 worst cities, neighborhoods within the city in the United States, where there are more heroin and crack houses than there are libraries. And the movie Fences isn't just some movie my grandmother lived next door. And I grew up as a smart kid in inner city Houston, scared to walk down the street because I was afraid to get jumped because they would take my books and sell them for drug use. And I grew up in church hearing songs like, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But then because I was a smart kid and I read books, I would go read scriptures that said, slaves obey your masters. Nobody could ever explain those things to me. But in that children's Bible, I remember sitting there when I was eight years old. It was Jesus with all these different people from all these different backgrounds, loving God. And I remember it was the first vision I ever had. I jumped into the page, and Jesus said, hey, you can come into all of this with me, too. And it changed my heart, and I gave my life to Jesus. But life told me pretty differently. I remember going to Nashville, Tennessee, and wanting to get a cookie, because that's what big people do. We like cookies, all right? <laughs> and I said, can I have a cookie? And the dude said, no, you can't have a cookie, you N-word. Well, I didn't know what an N-word was. I just wanted my cookie, <laughs> you know? And then he swiped a knife at me, and everything broke loose, and that's when I found out about racism. And it expanded through college. Though I was saved, I didn't know anything different because I would hear things as soon as I came into San Marcos. There's a six-foot-four black man wearing a hoodie, not knowing that I was just working out and just leaving Bible study. I'd get pulled over all the time, and cops would tell me, I'm just making an example out of you. Little did they know I was a 4.0 student <laughs> getting my master's, the only black person in my whole department, and again, left from leaving my Bible study. And I was so thankful because at the particular time, my friend, Barrett, who's always in the back, invited me to church. 
And when I came to church, I saw an adult version of what I saw as a kid of all these people from all these different backgrounds worshiping Jesus. I want you to look around at yourself right now. This is probably not the church that you grew up in. And then, long story short, I met a man named Peter. Go figure, right? (laughs) Haven't been able to get rid of him. But a white guy led me back to Jesus. And that struck something in me, because when I lost my ability to play football and everybody around me, he was the only person who took the time to love on me. And I'll try to rush through this, but I think this is important. And I don't work here anyway, so I won't, I won't be back. So I'm mess with you. All right? But even though I gave my life to Christ and Peter was saved, there was still a lot of work to be done in the both of us. See, Peter was saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, loving Jesus, evangelizing, and still had prejudice in his, in his heart. And you know what? I was woke, but I was still lost and still had hurt. And see, what God was doing, he was actually bringing two people from two different backgrounds, from two different places together to actually build a church. Because what laws can't do, Jesus can do in our heart through reconciliation. And what you're sitting in is a byproduct of God ridding of our prejudiceness and our racism. And the church of Rome was the very same thing. God birthed something out of something that was filled with political and racial injustice. And what God did during that time is that he began to work on me and he knocked me off my high horse of the hurt and the pain that I experienced. Because I would hear things like, when a black dude gets shot, oh, we don't see the evidence. And all of this stuff is not out and all these different things. And all the time I'm saying, as I'm serving in the church, what if it was me? That doesn't fit any of those qualifications. It doesn't even matter. And it was in that moment where I was like being stretched, like feeling like oh, I need to support my black people or I need to be a Christian in church. And my family's calling me Uncle Tom. And all the meanwhile, God showed me a vision and said, you know what? They stretched both of my hands out, too. And I died for both sides. And it was in that moment that I said, you know what, God, I will serve you whether somebody else chooses to or not in this particular area. (laughs) See, that's the promise that God was establishing. He was reconciling me to help build a church of reconciled people. And a multi-ethnic church with people from all different backgrounds is what shows God's promise, because that was the promise that was actually coming through Abraham. That was God's whole desire that people from all different backgrounds would come to know him. So what's our vision moving forward as a church? few things. Number one, a multi-ethnic church is not a strategy but a choice. We choose to make our church like this in the way we do our music, our sermons, the people who are up. Like, it is a choice. It's not a strategy. And you have to be willing to die for it. And this may not be the church for you, but if you're saying, I want to see this promise of God happen, this is the best church that you can be in within this city. Number two, it's a way to show off our church. Not just so, it's not a way to show off our church. It's a way to show off the gospel. We don't put pictures of all of our cute babies on the website because we think it's cool. This is an actual representation of what God has done in all of us. The fact that I am Uncle Shaddy to so many kids who don't look like me is the work of Jesus, not because I'm a good person. Number three, it's not a grid that we enforce, but it's a dream that we hold up. Again, all of us have a privilege in some certain way, and we want to use our privilege and not put up the most talented person, but the person whose heart is right. Number four, Multi-ethnic church is not an idea, but it's a people to love. The church is a people, not a building. We love the people more than we love our church vision. 
Because you know what? You can try to establish culture within church, and it can become real religious real quick that isolates people, and that's another weird form of system that's being placed in. And the last thing, a multi-ethnic church is not I worship with people that I agree on everything with, but I worship with people on this one thing, that Jesus is bigger than any and everything. Multi-ethnic church is beautifully described by a man I look up to by the name of D.A. Carson. He says, a band of natural enemies brought together for one sake, for one cause, which is Jesus' sake. We're all enemies to God before we met him, and he brought us all together for this one purpose, God's promise and his vision. And that's why the bondage of prejudice and racism can only be broken truly by a reconciled people and a reconciled church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you today. I pray in the midst of truth that you would allow grace to overwhelm people. For many of us today in this room, we know you, but there's also those who may not know you. And they may say, you know what, there's something broken within my own soul, and before I can fix problems on this earth, I need to be fixed. If you're saying today, I want to give my life fully to Jesus because he fully gave himself to me, and today I want to make that change, and I want to stand for you. If that's you, and you're saying, again, I want to give my life to Jesus, would you just raise your hand at this time? I ask that all of us would repeat as a church with them. Say, Father God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of your grace. Dear God, thank you for what you've done for me. I place my full faith in you as my Lord and Savior, and I will follow you all the days of my life by my faith, more importantly, through your grace. In Jesus' name. And the second prayer is this, is that many of us do know Jesus, but as we were talking today, if there's any form of hurt or prejudiceness that still may be in your heart in this particular area, and you're saying, you know what, God, I need you to fix this. I need you to change my heart for this. If that's you, would you raise your hand? God, you see these hands, and I pray that they would step forward in faith as Peter closed at the end. In Jesus' name, amen.